Psalm 46. And this is God's word. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in, in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Only up until recently, after having a small little child, I've been reminded of a I've been reminded of plenty of old stories that I I learned as a kid. One of them being the three little pigs, which I'm sure some of you guys or most of us here know. Briefly, the story goes, three little pigs grow up, they leave home, and they make a home for themselves. The first uh, first pig makes a, a home out of straw. The second one makes a home out of stick. But the third one, instead of running off and playing right away, puts his time and energy into making a house of bricks. And of course, one day, a, a bad wolf, and he has to be a hungry bad wolf, stumbles upon the pigs and, and threatens them. And as you guys know the story, you know, he huffs and he puffs and blows the house down. The first house goes down, and the first little pig scurries along to the second house of sticks, seeking shelter. And of course, the second house is also blown down, And lastly, he gets to the third house of bricks. The three little pigs are inside the house of bricks. And when he blows, nothing happens. Now, the original story, which is pretty gruesome, but the original moral of the story goes something along the lines of hard work pays off. But when I read it, I like to think there is a more profound and different moral of the story, and that is, a brick house is sturdier than a house of straw and stick. Now, some of you, if not most of you, are thinking, well, that's just way too simple. <laughs> that's just way too obvious of a moral to be of that story. And yet, as obvious as that may be, is it not true for us that we come together weekly and we confess with our mouth the wonderful power and greatness of God. And yet in our times of trouble, we often look to things that are less secure to find refuge. That is the main point of what the psalmist is trying to say in this psalm. That what he's trying to help us see is that when we face our troubles, we are able to do it without fear 
when we put our confidence in an almighty God, an almighty God who is with us. And so with that, I've broken down the sermon into three points, as you have in your outlines. Three R's, very helpful for us to memorize. And what we'll see the psalmist do is explain to us first the reality of our troubles. Help us see what they are and why we have them. Second, he'll turn and and help us see why God is a sure refuge to turn to and find security in in time of trouble. And lastly, we'll close our time together in response. What is the proper response? In light of knowing who God is and what he has done for us, what is the proper response that we are to give to God in times of our trouble? But before we do that, why don't we turn once again to the Lord and ask him for his help. Gracious Father, we ask once again, as we humbly come before you, as we go to your word, we ask that the Spirit may illuminate illuminate our hearts, that though we may read simple words and we may hear simple language, I pray that you may use extraordinary measures to open up resistant hearts and comfort the hearts that come weary. We pray once again that you may pierce our hearts so that we may both be convicted and comforted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may he be glorified in your servant's words. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we'll get right into it. The first R. The psalmist wants to see us to see the reality of our troubles by giving us two scenes. And these two scenes are going to help us see the reality of our troubles. The first scene we see, we see is, is in verses 2 to 3. Now, upon first reading of it, we may think that he's describing an earthquake, right? Earth is trembling, the waters are foaming, in which it may be true because Israel, ancient Israel, was not, it was an uncommon for them to experience earthquake. Upon further and deeper reading, we know it's not an earthquake because mountains are being thrown into the sea. Now, I've been here four months and no surprise to me. There aren't a lot of mountains here, or, or seas for that matter. But I, I don't think we need to be around a mountain or a sea or even have experienced an earthquake to know that there is something deeper and more cataclysmic going on if mountains are being th- th- hurled into the sky and thrown into the sea. Now, as such, this is a psalm. This is us- the, the psalmist is using poetic language to show for us something completely different. In fact, what he's trying to point to us is the undoing of creation. You see, we're in Genesis chapter 1 where we would see the earth and the earth and the land coming together and being formed. Here what we see is it crumbling and coming apart. And also in Genesis chapter 1 where we see that the waters are being stilled. Here what we actually see is the waters roaring and foaming. In fact, what he's trying to show us is that our troubles can feel this way at times. It can feel as if the very world underneath us, the ground that we stand, is crumbling apart. In fact, in the English language, you use this kind of terminology, terminology when, we, when we experience troubles. We say things like, my world is coming apart. The world is upside down. Or even parents will say to little kids, and not to diminish their troubles, we say to them, It's not the end of the world. But you see, 
the reality of our troubles is that sometimes it can feel as though the world is coming apart. Why do we face this? Why do we face troubles of this kind? The reality of our troubles is actually an extension of reality of our world and that it is full of sin. It is broken. It is full of our sin. And in fact, the world that we see and experience and live in full of trouble is not the world that God had created for us. This is not the world that God had intended for us. That is why we experience disease and suffering of various kinds. That is why we hear devastating news of cancer and of death. There's fear, anxiety. We despair when when we're waiting for that operation to come. We despair when we get sick. The world is not the way God had intended. The second scene the psalmist points us to is actually in verses 4 to 6, where it is a different angle of showing us the reality of our sin, or uh, the reality of our trouble. Here what we see is a city, a city with high walls. In fact, inside the city there is a stream. And the psalmist tells us that the streams make, the, make glad the city of God. And because of the way Hebrew, Hebrew poetry is structured, we later see in the beginning of verse 5 that the river itself is God. God himself is the river. God himself is in the midst of the city, and it's he who makes the city glad. Now, though we see this tranquil and peaceful scene on the inside of the city, what we also see later on is that there is something entirely different happening outside of the city. In verse 6, we are told that the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. Now, what it would sound like a besieging of a city, there's something more involved here. Something more is occurring here beyond a besieging of, let's say, Jerusalem, where ancient Israel would have experienced. But what's telling is that this is more poetic and pointing to something greater is that, one, ancient Israel, or I should say even modern-day Israel, doesn't have a river flowing through it. It may have springs here and there, but not the kind of imagery of a city with a river that's big enough that is making glad glad the city. So that's one. And number two, it's very subtle, but in verses six, it says the nations rage and the kingdoms totter. Not a nation, not a kingdom, but plural. The imagery is that we have a small city And pressing up against the wall is the kingdoms and the nations of the world. And they are raging and they are tottering. They're making war against God and his city because they are the ones who are opposing God. They are the ones who do not want to confess and do not want to claim God as the king and give him the praise that he deserves. Is it not true for us as well? Whether we're in 21st century Johnson County or whether it be any other time in human history. Is it not true that the enemies of God will press up against the church and threaten her? That we ourselves in this county and in this world, we face. And why do we face this? We face this because the psalmist uses one or two specific words to tie together both the first scene and the second scene. The first word he uses is this word, totter 
or this word moved. In verses 2, it says the mountains be moved. And later on in verses 6, it says the kingdoms totter. Moved and totter here are actually the same Hebrew word. And that word actually refers to movement or sliding or teetering or tottering because it stands on something that is not secure. There is no security in which it stands. The mountains stand on things that are not secure. The people stand on things that are uncertain. And if we see that, and if we see kind of the, the details of what that word means, it, it brings to light and helps us see exactly what's going on around us. See, in our 21st century, we may see things like people claiming for themselves their idea of what gender is. People seeing for themselves the value and the worth of when life begins. You see, to us, they may seem like small things, but there are deeper things that are going on in the very things that we are facing. It is the enemies of God who do not want to claim God's truth as God's truth. And they try to stand and make sense of life by standing on these things, and inevitably, they will totter. That is just the 21st century in the 70s, 50s, 20s, and thousands of years past. We can look at countless kingdoms and nations and peoples and cultures. None of them stand because they try to stand on things and make sense of their troubles in other things other than God. The second word is roaring. We see that in the first image that the seas roar. And later we see in verse 6 that the nations rage. Those two words actually are the same word. And yes, they rage and yes, they, 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 they disparage and they try to oppose God and his people. But that word specifically refers to a groaning, which is natural. Even for us, when we stand on things and we can't make sense of the, wor- of the world and our troubles around us, we groan. We groan in agony. We groan in despair. But where the world and the mountains and the people and the oceans and the kingdoms may slide and roar and rage and be moved, we also see in verse 5, the city she shall not be moved. Why? Because she rests and finds her comfort and refuge and, and a solid ground in God himself. See, if this is the reality of our troubles, the reality that we see in these two sins, the question begs, to what or to whom should we turn? And so this is where the psalmist moves and helps us to see that God is a sure refuge in our trouble. Martin Luther, the great reformer, though we may see him in a light where he's a bastion and he he is a, a hero of the faith, in reality, his life was full of troubles. We may see him as a man who stood against the Catholic Church and all the powers that came with it, But in fact, his day-to-day life was full of trouble. He feared for his life. He had to go into hiding. And he even heard of news of his friends who fought alongside him either be captured and even be executed. 
You see, his troubles were very real. But what Martin Luther did was in the midst of his troubles, he turned to this psalm specifically to remind himself that though his troubles were great, his God was greater. And from it, he wrote the great psalm, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And oftentimes, when he didn't face troubles, he would turn to his friend Philip Melanchthon and say, Philip, come let us sing the 46th Psalm. See, Martin Luther knew, and our psalmist here is trying to tell us, God is a mighty fortress. He is a refuge in our time of troubles. And what he does is he, he convinces us. He wants to persuade us why he is, and that is to point to three attributes of God. There's three attributes of God that we can see in this psalm so that we can take comfort in knowing that he is a good and sure refuge. First, it is by showing us God's power. God's power. Second, he shows us God's nearness. And lastly, he shows us God's faithfulness. Let's see this together. First, his power. First, God has power over nature. In verses 2 to 3, we have two full verses explaining a cataclysmic undoing of nature. Mountains being thrown, waters being foamed. And yet two full verses pale in comparison to the power of God over nature at the end of verse 6. Where it says, God utters his voice and the earth melts. You see, the God who was powerful enough by the power of his word to create the world from nothing also has the same power to destroy it if need be. There's nothing in nature, no disease, no suffering, not even death itself, where God is found not knowing what to do. God is powerful over nature. Secondly, he shows God's power over his enemies. Especially in verse 9, we see, and I'll read this for us. It says, God makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariots with fire. You see, with the second scene, with the nations pressing up against God's city, what we quickly see is the aftermath of what happens when people oppose God. The bow, the spear, and the chariot is laid to waste. Any instrument, any pride, any scheme of man that wants to undo God's plan and his authority all end up being destroyed. God has power over his enemies. And this is what we would expect. This is what we would expect from God because he is the Lord of hosts. And this is where the psalmist used that name very specifically. Both in verse 7, he reminds us, the Lord of hosts is with us. And seven, in verse 11 again, the Lord of hosts is with us. Now, some of you may know this, and I think, I think the English just does such a poor job with this name. Because it says the Lord of hosts, and it makes us think of a God who just waits tables for us. Which isn't the case. The Lord of hosts is actually the Lord of heavenly hosts. Or more specifically, this name is the Lord of heavenly armies. And we may not see it in this passage, But in two different occasions in the Bible, we see the magnificence and the power of this name, the Lord of hosts. First, we see in 2 Kings chapter chapter 6, 
where we see a scene where the prophet Elisha is trapped in a city called Dothan. Him and his servant and the few armies and, and the people of Israelites and the, peop- and the armies of Assyria pressed up against the city. And the servant is just nervous. He's a nervous wreck and he goes to Elisha, Elisha, I'm terrified. There are so many people out there than they are in here. What are we to do? And what Elisha does is interesting. He prays to God. Not that, he prays to God for God to deliver them, which he will eventually do. But he actually prays that God may open up the eyes of his servant. And when he does, after the prayer, the servant looks around. And in the mountains and in the valleys around them, he sees an army of angels surrounding them. The armies of heavenly hosts. The second place where we see in Scripture, in Isaiah chapter 36, we see another scene where Hezekiah is going up against the mighty king Sennacherib. And Sennacherib has come with 185,000 of his troops. And Hezekiah, everything has already been destroyed. The temple has been destroyed, and now it's the last straw. And Hezekiah has nowhere else to turn. And so he goes before God to his temple and prays. I am faced with troubles immeasurable. I need your help. And as the story goes, they go to sleep. And at night, God sends one angel. Not a hundred, not fifty. One angel from the heavenly host goes out and destroys 185,000 troops. If this is the God of heavenly hosts... And if this is what he could do with one angel, how much more his power with the full might of his army? You see, God has power over all brokenness. Whether it's brokenness from nature or the brokenness from the people around us and, through, and what we see from the enemies of God. But there is no power that could overcome our God. The second attribute the psalmist sees or helps us to see is the nearness of God. And this is a great encouragement to us. If our God is that powerful, then it is of great encouragement that that God is near us in our trouble. In verse 1, he says, God is a present help. In verse 7 and 11, twice, he says, the Lord of hosts is with us. And we see that in the city, the city is glad because God is with her. See, he is a personal God. He is not a God who hears our prayers and simply sends us things. And though he does, he is merciful and gracious to give us good gifts. But the nearness of God is of great comfort to us, not because he gives us a job, gives us money and a family and a church and a building and many resources where we can find comfort in, but our true comfort is found in him. And he is with us. He is close to us. Now, if I'm honest here, we could be jaded and we could take for granted that yes, God is great and he's powerful and yes, he is near us, but we should not presume that we deserve this great God to be near us. 
especially, I'll be the first to admit, especially in times of trouble, I am more often similar to those people outside the walls than the people inside the walls. I could be the first to admit that in times of trouble, I try to look to my own pride and to my own resources and to my own intellect and to my own comforts of my home and my job and finances, whatever it may be, and hope that that thing will be the secure refuge for me in my times of trouble. I don't know what it looks like for you. It may be in your job. It may be in finding comfort in how you raise your kids, where you send them to school, what you teach them. It could be a slew of things. It could be good things. But if it isn't God, we are more like those people outside the walls than inside. If that is the case, what comfort do we have that, yes, it is a great God, but what comfort do we have that he would be near to us? And the great comfort comes in in our last attribute of God, and that is his faithfulness. Our guarantee that the Lord of hosts is with us because he is faithful to us. Where do we see that? Where do we see God's faithfulness? The psalmist uses one Three, three words, one name, and it means so much. And he calls him the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, we have the privilege of going through Genesis, so we are at least keen or fresh in our minds who Jacob is. And if we've been paying attention, and even if we haven't been or if we haven't been going through Genesis, it doesn't take long for you to know that when you read the Jacob story, Jacob is not a good man. I'm being nice. He's conniving. He schemes in such a way to make sure that he has leverage in his situation. In fact, his unfaithfulness and lack of trust to God actually pours and affects his own family. If you remember when they have kids and they're wrestling, and ha- it's a mess. Well, if that's the case, if Jacob is the kind of man that he is, what glory is there? in a name like the God of Jacob. What glory do you have being a God of a man such as this, as a people like us? Maybe I can use an illustration to help us see where the glory actually is found. Now, I'm an Eagles fan, but for the sake of you all, I will use a Chiefs analogy. Imagine the father of, uh, imagine two fathers. And the first father introduces himself as, I am the father of Patrick Mahomes. And the second father comes up right after him and says, I am the father of the backup kicker. Who has more glory? The first one, of course. Why? Not to praise a man, but Patrick Mahomes in all his accolades is beloved by the city and he's won a couple Super Bowls. Hard to admit, but, but there's something about Patrick Mahomes that actually feeds into the glory of knowing or being recognized as his father. But in fact, what's actually going on in here is different. You see, the glory of the name God of Jacob doesn't actually come, unlike the analogy that I just used about Patrick Mahomes, unlike that one, the glory of God does not come in the name of Jacob, but rather to say, 
that I am a God who is faithful and merciful even to a man such as this. You see, the glory doesn't come in Jacob's name. It comes in the character that the God of the universe will even associate himself and have a name for himself after a man such as this. You could fill in your name. I can fill in mine. The God of John. There is no glory in me. And yet I could take comfort in knowing that the powerful God is near to me in times of trouble because God is faithful to himself, to his covenant, and to his people. And we see this most fully, the power and nearness and faithfulness and love of God most clearly in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's in Christ the fullness of God's power is shown when Jesus is able to conquer over all of our troubles, especially our eternal one, and that is Satan, sin, and death. You see, it's in Christ that the fullness of God's nearness is shown to us because the almighty God condescends to become a human being in a low state, in a manger, as a helpless babe. And not only that, he experiences the very trouble you and I experience. And so he knows what we go through, if not even more. And most ultimately, in Christ, the fullness of God's love and faithfulness is seen. It's because by sending him and by dying for us, and being raised again from the dead and ascending into heaven, you see, all of these show that God holds to his promises. You see, where you and I deserve the very things that we read here in verse 9, you see, we deserve this. You and I deserve to be broken like a bow. You and I deserve to be shattered. You and I deserve the fiery punishment of opposing God. And yet, because God is faithful, God sends his only son. And we see that it's his body that's broken and shattered. And it's he who experienced the fiery wrath of God for our sake. Brothers and sisters, I hope that we are encouraged by these attributes of God so that when we face trouble, we can behold him. We can behold that through Christ. And what he has granted for us. We can find full confidence in him. Lastly, in light of this, what is our response? What is the proper response when we experience troubles of various kinds? There's two that I would like to highlight. First, first it comes in verse 8 where it says, Come behold the works of the Lord. Our response in times of trouble is to come and see the works of God. And what this means, first, what it means for us if we are believers, this come and see is a reminder. It's a reminder to look back to who Christ is. Look back to see what Christ has done. Behold in the works that God has done for us. How do we do that? Daily scripture reading devoting ourselves to the reading of Scripture and in prayer, and also by remembering what God has afforded us in this congregation to the local body 
to Christ's body, to his bride. Not only do we as a church experience the full benefits of what Christ has done, but in times of trouble, we aren't given the church so that we can go back home and do it by ourselves. In fact, praying for one another, looking and putting an actual hand over a a shoulder of a brother and sister, reminding them when it's hard the wonderful works of God, these are the ways where we can overcome our troubles and to be reminded that our God is strong, near, and faithful to us. We do that for one another. Secondly, if you aren't a believer, what come and behold actually is, is an invitation. It's an invitation to first be honest with yourself and look back at all the things that you turn to in times of trouble. Is it your job? Is it money? Is it health? Is it your status? Is it your prestige? What is it? And if you're honest with yourself, those things do not satisfy. In fact, if you keep turning to those same things time and time again, it's a reminder they're not working. You see, come and see is an invitation to say, trust in a God who not only is able, but is gracious enough to be near to you and is faithful to his word. That's one. The second response we are to have in our times of trouble, we see in verse 10, where God says himself, Be still and know that I am God. Be silent. What it doesn't mean is this. It's not be still and pretend like the troubles don't exist. Convince yourself that you aren't sick. Convince yourself that so-and-so is in deep trouble. That's not what it means. Be still also doesn't mean when you go through trouble, let me know and I'll get rid of it for you. That's not what it means. Actually, be still and know that I am God is a humbling word. It's for us to say, be still. I know you, your mind wants to go and be concerned and, and just be captivated by worry through the thing that you're going through. But instead of turning to that first and scheming of ways of how you're going to get rid of it, I want you to stop. Be still. And know that I am God. Yes, you are going through your troubles. Yes, you are waiting for that day. Who knows? Some of you guys here are waiting or anxious of a day of something that's about to, about to come. But before your heart wants to be concerned about those things, the word is to say, be still. And turn not to your troubles, but turn to God. You see, because he is God and we are not. He is able, we are not. He is faithful and we are not. This is what Jesus means for us in John chapter 16, verse 33, where he assures us. He assures us two things. He says, in this world you will have trouble. But he also says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In conclusion, church, indeed, Jesus has overcome the world. We ought to read verse 10. On this side of salvation, we ought to read the final two lines of verse 10 this way. Where I should just read the whole thing. Be still and know that I am God. 
And we ought to read this with comfort in saying, He has been exalted among the nations. I have been exalted over the earth. And so when we face the troubles of this life, let us be comforted to know that our God, who did not spare his only son for us, will most surely and graciously also give us all things to endure through our trouble. Because he is our strength. He has drawn near to us and he protects us with faithfulness and love. And until the day where we do get to see that heavenly city, may we at least in this time, may we put our refuge in him like the psalmist by often repeating these words, the, God, the Lord of hosts is with us and the God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. O most holy and able God, you who are strong, you who conquer and rule over all things, we thank you that you are able to overcome any troubles that we face. And also, not only are you able, we are grateful and we are humbled that you are willing, that in your faithfulness to your church and for your glory and to our benefit, we pray that as we go, and leave at this place, and we face various troubles of various kinds, help us to be still. Help us with the power of the Holy Spirit to turn first and foremost to God so that we may have a better understanding of our trouble. So that, yes, as devastating as it may be, help us to know that you do not leave us hopeless. Rather, you are close to us. And in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let us sing a, a song, a hymn of response as